following program contains language and subject matter that you may consider unsuitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Greetings, Herfman. Uh, His Highness the Jackal. The Jackal. I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the new king of radio. <laughs> yes. Allow me to puff as well. Mm. Uh, Those are some powerful herbs. <laughs> giving me dark visions. Shall we pack this again? I, I'm not giving visions. I'm not sure if it's working, is it? Oh. Visions. Oh. Visions. Thaddeus, are you seeing what I'm seeing? You making a fool of yourself. Handle your shit, Fabius. I think Jack is a Latino. I'm not sure, but he'll give it to you again. Hold on one second here. The Jackal. Holy shit! Night! I'll deliver that! And yo, spark up the Phillies and pass the stout. Make it quick, Marty Grip, blow your asses out. In a street brawl, I strike men quicker than lightning. You see what happened in my last white friend, Ivan. Now it's a clever threat, a lyricist who never sweat. Comparing yourself to me is like a binge to a Chevrolet. And clown rappers, I'm bound to slay. I'm saying hi to all the duties from around the way. Yeah, I got all of them strung, Jack. That the girls are like no matter how far I throw them, they come back. I'm coming straight out to NYC. I'm down with digging in the crates and I'm in VP. Do it so much that I get papes. Peace to all the DJs who gave me love on they mixtapes. And once again, the man's Yeah, yeah. Big L in the house. With price to pay to make it whole, take control. I'm making dough, but not enough to blow. JOs, they lost my flow, but they yo. I don't trust the soul, so I know we need to. These evil streets to meet you halfway, you need you. Alive, trying to survive the legal. I leave you lost, mount you on the cross, whip you like a horse. Sacrifice your life to a higher force. Then I stomp your corpse, just the Bronx, of course. Recognize the accent, one of the last living, still in action. General assassin, catching any rack, blasting any text, smashing any chest, passing any chest. Charles Manson in the flash, any last request. Before you meet Jamaica, so with your reaper, wake up, shaking up a storm like a need a baker. I'll take it straight to hell and fill your heart with hate, incarcerate your fate, Satan's fire be late, then I lock the gate. Make no mistake, this shit is real as Joe. We follow the killer's code. When we come for you, tell me where will you go? Nowhere to run, hide, or find you and silence your screams. And even if you kill me, I'll still be in your fucking dream. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Inside the Jackal's Head right here on PSN Radio and, of course, SoFlow Radio. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight. Whether you're from east of the Rockies or west of the Rockies or wherever you are on this great nation tonight, thank you for spending your time with me, your graceful and gracious host, the Jackal. Tonight, as my compadre here, Pete, just put it, I have a big one. Yeah, you weren't supposed to say that on here. Sorry, Pete, but I had to repeat the private message you just sent me saying you have a big one tonight. Yes, tonight I have a big one. Well, you want to clarify what do you mean by big? Well, we're talking about the guest tonight. We have a big guest tonight. Terry Wickham is going to join us tonight. The 
I, now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Terry Wickham, but Terry Wickham is a very cool dude. He's actually been on Out of Sight Radio when I was on that show. Now, Terry Wickham is the president of Manta Ray Pictures. Now, that's a company that represents all of his work. He's He grew up in uh, Everett, um, Washington, and uh, he's good friends with Out of Sight. Had him on that show a couple times, and he's a really, really cool guy. And we're going to talk about horror movies and all kinds of cool stuff within the world of entertainment and whatever else he's working on. And uh, he'll be on here within the next half hour. So that's what I mean by when I say I have a big one. Yeah, that's the only thing you mean. Oh, shut up, Pete. Anyway... Guys, tonight I have a couple of things I want to go over before uh, I get onto the news. One thing that I got into a little bit of an argument today, and I really wanted to uh, get to that real quick. Um, here's how I went down. This is a Facebook argument, okay? Somebody posted something on Facebook, and they're probably listening right now. So, by the way, if you guys want to call in, the lines are open from here to when I go on break. The number is 786-245-8127. You could also look us up on Skype by looking up PSN Radio. Now, it was with a friend of mine, uh, one of the gentlemen who hosts Unraveling the Secrets, posted a, a video uh, saying that, you know, saying all kinds of stuff about the president, that he's a socialist, a Marxist, a communist, all kinds of stuff. Now, the video opens up with a tagline that says, This video has been banned in the United States by the president. Gee, I wonder why. I make a, a statement, and this is really, really funny. I make a statement saying that, well, if the video was banned in the United States, then how come it's on YouTube? And that created an onslaught, which ended up pretty funny between uh, me and Michael Mott. This is the gentleman I'm talking about. So, Mike, if you want to get on air and you want to debate me on what was said, or you want to debate me on the video itself, by all means, call on in, brother. Call in and debate me. Let's see what you got. Because, honestly, I was just making an innocent comment, and it kind of, like, spiraled out of control into, like, a billion posts by uh, Michael Mott. God bless him. He's very passionate about what he believes in. Whether he's wrong or right, and most likely wrong about most of the stuff he believes in, it's neither here nor there. He has an open forum on his show, and of course here, if he wants to call in and be brave enough to confront me on my own show, he has that privilege. So this kind of spiraled out of control, and it's funny because I saw the video, and immediately he made an assumption like that I didn't see the video. He was like, well, the video's like 10 minutes long, Jackal, and you posted a minute after I posted the video, so there's no way you could have seen the video. Mind you, I was watching the video as he was posting that. My initial comment was just about the title of the video, not the video itself. I had not even seen the video at that point. When I see his comment, I was about to finish watching the video. So I finished watching the video, and I'm like, okay, this dude just made a bunch of assumptions for absolutely no reason. Didn't have to go there, but he did. So I'm giving him the floor now if he wants to be brave enough and call in. William Michael Mott call in and debate me on how Obama is all those things you know whatever dude you know I know they you know it's funny because the right wing really hates Obama and they're and you know they, they go out of their way to make fun of the guy and they go out of their way to talk trash about the guy but guess what in four years when there's another Democrat in office they're going to do the same thing to that guy and it won't matter if he's a white guy or a black guy or whatever. They're going to do the same thing. That's just the way the game is. And it's propaganda. It's all propaganda. They did it to Bush when he was in office. And the left wing was going crazy towards Bush. Now that we have a Democrat, not the, the right wings are going crazy towards Obama or towards the Democrats. That's kind of the way the game is played. 
between both parties. But I really love how Michael uh, Mott really just puts his heart and soul into it, man. He really goes all out on these um, posts on Facebook. And it's funny because I, you know, I like to troll every once in a while my friends on Facebook just to mess with them. When they post something like idiotic, I, I'll leave a comment here and there and I'll kind of like push a button to see if they say something. And he's really easy. Michael Mott, really, he really is easy to like mess with and get him all excited and worked up and stuff. But again, my comment, Mike, and, and if you're listening, again, call in. You know, don't be a stranger. Um, you know, my comment again was about the initial post itself and the subject line, which was again that this video had been banned by the president. And if that's starting off already, the video's a lie because the video was not banned by the president. If it had been banned, Michael Mott. If it truly was a video that got banned by the government, then it wouldn't be on YouTube. Simple as that. So hopefully that puts that to rest. I know there was a lot of uh, back and forth between me and him earlier today. I think he probably deleted uh, all the back and forth, though, from his page, because he does that. He'll get into, like, an argument with me every once in a while, and it'll spiral out of control for a few minutes, and he'll post, like, a billion things, and I'll make some funny jokes, and, and then at the end of the day, he just deletes it. It's a funny cat, Michael Mott. Gotta love him, though. Check his show out, Unraveling the Secrets, every uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, midnight. Uh, good show. Him and uh, Tim Schwartz uh, do the show. They, they had a show last night. They couldn't make it because uh, uh, their guests canceled on them or something, so they ran a repeat. But they're pretty much uh, live every uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. So check that show out, Unraveling the Secrets. And I want to give a free plug, guys, as we continue on here with the show. I want to give a free plug to O Cinema. I was supposed to check out an event they were having tomorrow, but uh, I think that got scrapped. But check out o-cinema.org. Really cool website. Uh, what they do here is they put a bunch of old movies and uh, movies that are coming to a, like an anniversary or something like that. They'll play them. Uh, and it was really cool. They had an event uh, a few weeks back, which I attended with my old man, and uh, it was a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. Really cool event, and that was 25 years after it initially came out in theaters, which, you know, to to be able to see that movie the first time around in theaters with my dad, and that was 25 years ago, and then to be able to go back 25 years later and see it on the big screen again, it's epic. You know, that was uh, probably the most fun I had all year, um, going to see that movie with my old man. And then the other movie I saw with my mom was really a lot of fun, also, because it was a great movie. So those are the two... That's kind of weird, the two... Uh, I guess best uh, best times I've had this year has been with my parents. Want to see a movie? Who would have thought? Huh? Who would have thought that? Yeah, mama's boy. Yeah, shut up, Pete. You're a mama's boy. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. Go back to the boards and mute yourself. I don't want you talking for the rest of the episode. Because tonight we do have a big guest. Terry Wickham is going to be in the house, everybody, and he's going to be on for a full hour. That's exciting. You know, if Out of Sight's listening, hopefully he calls in. Hopefully everybody who is into uh, Terry Wickham's work calls in tonight. We have a, a lot of callers. I like when we have callers. It's an interaction, man. It's really what this show is all about. If you guys are listening in over Shoutcast, over the website, over everywhere. Now, I know that a lot of folks who are listening in are not on the chat because I'm looking at the chat, and right now it's just me and Zod Rider, and there's a lot of people listening in, so people, come on over. PSN-radio.com. Check out the uh, Listen Live in Chat box. It's on the right, left-hand side. It's a big old box that says, Listen in Chat Live. You click on it, you go in there, and you start chatting with the rest of us. And yeah, Zod, I was I, I was kind of hoping that Mott would call in and 
Debate me. Why not? Debate, debate, debate. That's what they're. That's what Todd Ryder just put in the chat room. But uh, so far, no call from William Michael Mott. And again, it was just a uh, you know, it was an innocent post, and he kind of like got all butt hurt and defensive about it. But he does that every time. I've never seen somebody go out of their way to bash a president so much. I mean, hey, I don't like Bush, but I don't make every post about George Bush on my website. Even when he was president, I didn't do that on MySpace or Facebook or. They didn't have Twitter back then, I don't think. Twitter's kind of a relatively new thing. Still, in, uh, you know. So I don't think that was uh, something I was checking out back then. Now, real quick, I also want to plug a movie that just came out. And already it's getting rave reviews. And I really want to go see it. The movie Gravity. I don't know if you guys have seen this uh, yet. Uh, it looks spectacular. It really does. It's with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. They're stuck in space. It's like the movie Open Waters, but in space. And supposedly a lot better. Everybody who's seen it, who's uh, con- gotten back to me, has told me the same thing. That, man, this movie's epic. you got to check this out. Might go see it sometime this week. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's legendary 2001 A Space Odyssey premiered in Australia, in Sydney, uh, and it says here on May 1st, 1968, exactly a month after uh, that, it's April 1st opening in New York. It says here, presented in a widescreen cinema, uh, cinerama system, the film was greeted with the wonders that reality and technical achievements and visualized space travel of the future would look like, and in comprehension as the meaning of its uh, opaque narrative resulting in repeated viewings by duplicate by dedicated fans uh, determined to uh, decipher the mysteries of the movie. There are no mysteries in Alfonso Cuaron's new 3D film, Gravity. The plot, such as it is, is as simplistic as itself. Like I said, it's like open water. They're stuck in space, but it says here, but I can't think of no fictional film made since 1968 about the experience of space travel that is as amazing and amazingly convincing as the one in Gravity. So, they're saying that this is uh, definitely the best space travel film since Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that was, that was such a, an amazing film. Look, I, I kind of got into it with somebody else on Facebook again. I got to really chill off on going on Facebook because you know, a lot of people get really weird on Facebook and they like to argue. But that was such an, an amazing movie. Like, if you don't understand how epic 2001 A Space Odyssey is, then you just don't understand the film. That movie was groundbreaking, man. That was like, look, Stanley Kubrick, for as weird of a director as he was, he really made a masterpiece with that movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, this movie was written by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. It was a labor of love for the both of them. They did something with very little money that looked epic and stands to the test to today. Like, you can watch that movie right now and it's still a great movie. Now, mind you, it's not an easy movie to wrap your mind around and really understand and comprehend everything that's going on, because it is a bit trippy and a little bit and a bit out there. But it's one of those movies with repeat viewings; it just gets better and better and better. And whoever hates on that movie, my sympathies, man. You really uh, you you have no idea what good movies are if you're hating on that movie. So. Check that movie out, man. Rewatch it a couple more times. It's an epic movie. But Gravity, it's getting such great reviews. I'm so excited to watch this movie now. I know a lot of folks are like kind of hating on it because it has Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, who is, you know, let's face it, George Clooney, uh, it's uh, not loved by the fanboys because of his ride as the Batman. Right? People didn't like his uh, turn as the Batman. So because of that one movie, a lot of fanboys hate his guts. But I'm a big fan of Clooney. I don't care about his one take uh, or one bad role 
in the Batman movie, Batman and Robin. George Clooney, I think, is a great actor. I think he's uh, very underrated as an actor. I, I don't think he's I don't think he's won any Academy Awards yet, but he really should one day win an award. I'm sure he will because he is a very very talented actor. And uh, one of my favorite movies ever is by George Clooney, and that's Man Who Stared at Goats. I love that movie with Ewan McGregor, who's also in that film. Uh, I highly recommend it. If you guys have never seen that movie, just blind buy it. Just go to Best Buy or whatever, or wherever you buy your Blu-rays, and just buy the Blu-ray. It's very cheap on Amazon. You can probably find it for like a couple bucks there. Definitely worth buying. It's one of the best movies you're ever going to see. It's an awesome film. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is another good movie. Up in the Air, you know, Ocean's Eleven. I can go on and on. The guy makes really good movies. He made one shitty movie in 1990-whatever. You know, it happens. You know, and that's an actor right there who I, I would love to see him get a redeeming role in a comic book movie somewhere. Like Ben Affleck is getting now in, in uh, the Batman versus Superman film, because that's really what that is. That's kind of his redeeming role for, for superhero films. Because he, <laughs> he butchered Daredevil. Let's be real, Daredevil. Wow, he killed a franchise before it even got started with Daredevil. So this is going to be his redeeming role, and I would love to see. Again, I would love to see George Clooney get that redeeming role. What would be a good role for him though? What would be a good role that he could play in a comic book movie? You know, maybe we'll get into that with Terry Wickham tonight, or if anybody wants to call in and, and give their suggestion of what good character he could play within a comic book, you know, comic booky movie, or or something along the lines of a comic book film, uh, in, in some kind of an adaptation. You know, he again, he's a, an excellent actor. I think he could pull off certain roles. Uh, the thing is, he's also getting a little bit older. So it's a little bit harder, you know, he was born in 1961, so he's, he's getting up there. It's going to be harder for him to get just the right role, you know, at, at this age. When he did Batman, he was literally, like, the right age. Now he's 52, and he's getting up there, you know, so... I don't know what role will be adequate. Maybe something with, like, the Fantastic Four. Maybe as Mr. Fantastic or something like that. Man, that's the worst idea ever. What do you mean it's the worst idea ever? Yeah, like, you want to have George Clooney as Mr. Fantastic? I mean, come on, dude. Why? What's wrong with George Clooney as Mr. Fantastic? Why not? Look, the, the last guy who made two movies sucked. I mean, that guy was no good as Mr. Fantastic. I think Clooney would be pretty good as Mr. Fantastic. Give him, give him a better cast, a better director, a decent budget, and I think he could, um, you know, work as Mr. Fantastic. He has the gray hair going on. Fantastic Four, George Clooney. Why not give him a Marvel treatment? You know, he really he screwed. They, they could do kind of like what uh what Affleck did. You know, Affleck started on Marvel, fucked that up. He went to DC, and now he's gonna fuck that up. So Clooney will be backwards. He was on Batman, fucked that up. Now give him a, a Marvel property, see if he could you know do something good with uh, Fantastic Four. Even though he'll probably fuck that up too, because you know, <laughs> let's just face it, Fantastic Four is a hard one to get to get right. But, it, you know, I think if any, uh, if you're going to put any actor in a role like that, I think it'll be great for George Clooney to, to do something like that. And again, it'll redeem that man's career because, honestly, he has had, you know, a, a difficult time uh, putting stuff together after Batman and Robin. It, it, it took him a little bit to really get to that point where he was, uh, you know, a, a, acceptable Again, as a leading man in Hollywood, because honestly, that movie really almost destroyed his career. It really did. I mean, the the Peacemaker came out right around the same year, I think, and that did okay. 
but it really didn't do anything special. Out of Sight came out also, and that didn't do that well. Uh, the one movie that I think really kept him, you know, going and, and kind of kept his name in there was a Thin Red Line. That was a great movie. Then he did Three Kings, and he went a little bit offbeat with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and continued that with The Perfect Storm. And he, you know, he 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 tried to catch on different roles that really were completely different to kind of like completely leave that Batman movie behind because man, what a stinker. Batman and Robin would probably go down as the worst, not only the worst comic book movie ever made, but definitely one of the worst films, period, ever made. Ever. Now, moving on to uh, another item of news here, because we're almost uh, going on break here in a few minutes, and of course we're going to have Terry Wickham uh, join us uh, at the 30-minute mark. So only 10 more minutes, and we have Terry Wickham on the show. But check this out. Stink Bugs or stink bug populations may be ready to explode, and we're right at the epicenter, says this article here. It says, where's the big stink? Well, if, uh, if you're in the studio, it's uh, somewhere where Pete is sitting. Hey, man. Yeah, that's right, hey, man. Right where you're sitting, Pete. Stinks right over there. But it says here, where's the big stink? In all lower 48 states, but the East Coast can expect to get, to, can expect to get big stink-bombed Especially really hard because of some bugs coming out. Now it says here, if you notice the foul smell in your house, uh, then notice uh, your dog looking a bit sheepish. Don't blame the pet. Blame the stink bugs. Making a comeback in Virginia and most other parts of the country, we're really expecting a bigger crop of stink bugs in the region coming into 2013, Mike Raup said. And uh, he said here, a little brown uh, memorated stink bug. Marmorated, whatever the hell that word means. Uh, stink bug, stink bug are only about the size of pumpkin seeds. They're really tiny, but they cause a big stink when crushed. Thank, uh, thank Asia for that. By the way, they arrived here from uh, their shores in the 1990s. Thank you, Asia. AGProfessional.com warns the East Coast could take the brunt of the stink bug population explosion. Placed, uh, let me see, uh, placed with the perfect climate for those guys, Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. D.C. It already stinks up there, so this will add to the stink coming out of D.C. It says here, we're right at the epicenter. We're at the place where there are more sting bugs than anywhere on the planet. As far as we can tell right now, said Mr. Rupp. He told WTOP that in addition to being annoying, uh, stink bugs can beat up crops. And uh, was reported on uh, GrowingProduce.com reports that in 2010, stink bugs ravaged peach and apple orchids and uh, in the mid-Atlantic region. So if you start smelling a little bit of a stink, might not be your dog that took a poop somewhere. It might be just stink bugs and you just crushed a few. You know, that's another thing that we got to worry about, huh? Bugs that stink. It's not bad enough that D.C. is full of garbage and trash that stink already. And I'm only talking about the people in Congress. That's all I'm talking about so far. But now we got to worry about these bugs that stink also. That's just phenomenal. So stink bugs. Look out for that. Another uh, news uh, item here that was really, really funny, I thought. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew, by the way, uh, says here, O.J. Simpson tax lien uh, is uh, for about $500,000. He has a tax lien for about five hundred grand. Now, O.J., of course, is in prison. But since the former football star still owes about 500000 in unpaid taxes, the juice is in trouble again. In prison, former football players stand and stand out. O.J. Simpson failed to pay about $17 million 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. misread that. <clears throat> $17,000 in taxes in uh, 2011, according to the federal tax lien uh, filled in December. Uh, TMZ reports that the sum combined with about 179435 for the years 2007 through 2010 and 318000 uh, to the state of California intends to collect for state taxes, bringing Simpson's unpaid taxes to a grand total of... $515,000 that he owes the government. Not to mention his other expenses, of course. And don't forget, he still owes millions to the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman for that whole double murder thing that happened a few years ago. I don't know if you guys remember that little incident. Simpson is currently serving a 30-year prison sentence, including nine years without any parole, in a Nevada Lovelock, uh, Lovelock Connection uh, Correctional Center. That's where he's at, in Nevada's Lovelock Con- Correctional Center. After the uh, 2008 conviction involving armed robbery and kidnapping, Simpson was found not guilty of murdering his ex-wife and her friend in the highly publicized criminal trial in uh, a 1997 uh, 1997 civil court judgment against Simpson ordered him to pay the families those of uh, those victims uh, 33.5 million. Now, being behind bars, it's going to make it really really hard for OJ to make that kind of loot. I mean, he's going to have to start creating some hell of really nice License plates for people. I don't know what the hell he's going to start doing in prison, but maybe uh, blowing dudes on the side. I don't know, but he's going to have to really start working his ass off if he plans to pay the government back, man. I don't think he's going to be able to do it, to be honest with you. Can the Jews pay back the government? Inquiring minds want to know. Guys, we're going to go to our first break of the evening. When we come back, we will have Terry Wickham on the line with us. Stick around, and if you want to get in on the phones, open lines. 786-245-8127 is the call-in number. You can look us up on Skype also. Look up PSN Radio if you want to Skype in. And check out the website again, psn-radio.com. Join us in the chat room. We'll be right. How does that feel, baby? Mm, Lower. How does that feel, baby? (laughs) You are listening to (laughs) (laughs) The Jackal. Look at this! One contradiction eating another! On the jackal's head. (laughs) From what I hear, Jackal... I think Jackal's a Latino, I'm not sure, but he'll give it to you good. Hold on. Rising up, back on the streets, did my time, took my chances. What happened to me when I had the voice in my head and... Went the distance, now I'm back on my feet Just a man and his will to survive I've never played that for anyone or anybody I never said anybody will ever see this That's how embarrassing it is It's the eye of a tiger It's the thrill of the fight Rising up to the challenge of our rival And the last known survivor stokes his prey in the night As he watches us the fallen beast of the tiger. That is really cool. <laughs> 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 
It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Discount Comic Book Service, where you can save 40 to 75% off on new comics, collected editions, graphic novels, action figures, statues, and other one-of-a-kind items from DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, Top Cow, Dynamite, and many, many more. Go to www.dcbservice.com for easy ordering and fast delivery. Or you can visit our brick-and-mortar location at 10202-C Coldwater Road in Fort Wayne, Indiana. DCBS, welcome home. 4,734 UFO sightings in 2007. 854 abductions by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens. Hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from the public knowledge for years. And only one trusted source on information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. The UFOstore.com. Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. The internet is not a brochure rack. You can't create a website like you'd create a brochure. Print it once, never update it. You've got to treat your website content like a business asset. But face it, you don't have time to focus on your web content. Turn it over to Ion Leap. We're an internet marketing agency who helps companies get found by search engines using robust content. Bring your website content to life. Learn more at IonLeap.com. The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes. That George Rodriguez. 
What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban feller. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. with our guest of the evening, Mr. Terry Wickham, joins us here on Inside the Jackal's Head. And Terry Wickham, of course, like I said earlier on the show, is the president of Manta Ray Pictures, a company that represents all of his work. And I want him to really get into who he is before we go further into what he's working on right now, because he's, he is a very interesting fellow. And Terry, welcome to the show. I really appreciate having you on tonight and you being with us. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be on part of it. Now, I've had you, of course, we've interviewed you on uh, Out of Sight Radio, and that audience knows who you are, but my audience here it might not be as aware as to who you are in Manta Ray Pictures. Give us a little bit of, of a backstory before we continue on about who you are and how you got started with Manta Ray Pictures. Oh, sure. Um, I'm a filmmaker, journalist. Um, I've been making movies uh, since uh, 1986 in some capacity. Um, started out when I was in the Army. I started directing music videos when I was in West Germany. Um, that progressed into when I went to Louisiana, which is my second duty station. And then I just kept trying to make films and short films and music videos over the course of that time. Um, I eventually went to New York, um, where I continued that. Um, I studied at the American Film Institute in New Orleans for directing uh, with Dazu Magar, who's part of the American Film Institute. I studied screenwriting in Houston when I was in the Army in, in Louisiana with uh, Carl Sutter, who wrote for Moonlighting. Um, I studied, that was screenwriting, and I studied with Martha Coolidge with the American Film Institute in uh, their uh, AFI location in New York. And then um, I did some other studying when I got to New York at NYU. I studied you know, film, technology, producing, um, did some screenwriting classes, even with um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption director, Frank Darabont, Oh, uh, cool! That wasn't who, by the way, some people might recognize that name from The Walking Dead. Oh, of also. course, The Walking yeah. Dead and The Mist, and uh, you know, uh, The Green Mile. You know, so uh, really nice fellow, great, great movie director. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot from him. 
And, you know, uh, really I consider myself mostly self-taught. I mean, just I can't tell you how many books and DVDs and laser discs and, you know, all the things I've studied over the years. And, of course, making your films is where you learn the most. That's the, the number one passion in your life, huh, making films? Yeah, and what really sucks about it is I don't get to make films as often as I'd like. So, <laughs> so, so in between that time, I'm also a journalist, which I've been doing since I was in high school. Uh, back in high school, I had a, a magazine, well, I call it a fanzine, that I put out called Carnage, which at the time was short stories, film reviews, music reviews. I had artists that would draw uh, photographs for not only the short stories, but the reviews. Uh, guys like Tim Bruns and Andrew Capella and Jim Margrave were the artists I worked with back then. And then, um, you know, over the course of, uh, say, 30 years, I wrote uh, for the Army. I actually reviewed movies and stuff when I was in the Army. Then I came out and I wrote for FearsMag.com. I was a senior writer for Guitar2001Magazine.com, um, Shockwave Magazine, Rumor Magazine, and, of course, my own website for, like, the last 10 years, which I actually liked the most. Um, even though, you know, when you're in a magazine, it's kind of neat to see it in print. But mm -hmm. the thing I always found was terrible about magazines were how long it took for the article that you would write, how long it would take to get out. And then to get paid, it would take like four or five, six months. And, you know, I don't always do this for money, you know, for the, the main reason. But, right. I mean, you'd write like a review of a, a CD and you wouldn't see a payment for like six months. Wow, so you, I didn't even know that you got paid to do a review for a CD. I would like to do those for free if they give me the chance. Oh, well, for my own site, that's obviously what I do. But for magazines and stuff, you always get paid. So, right, you know, like right. if I wrote for Shockwave or something like that, it would just take forever. And then, you know, one of the worst, I think really what kind of kind of blew, broke the straws back or so to speak was I wrote this one big article on a band from uh, Sweden called Evergrey, who I really like. And I wrote this really nice article when their album was coming out in uh, 2006 called Money Morning Apocalypse. And it took a couple of months for the article to come out. And then they get, they didn't even put my name on the article. They put the wrong person's name. Are you serious? Yeah, so I'm like, it took forever to get paid, <laughs> and then they didn't even put my name on it. So Maybe that's I was, why it took forever to get paid. They, they screwed up the name. They didn't know who to pay. Yeah, exactly. So, so after that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do my own site because I don't have to wait for things to go up. And right. And I don't have to worry about it getting screwed up like that. I'll just do it myself. <laughs> now I'm looking, at, I'm looking at your site here, and it shows you that you've, you've done a, definitely a bunch of short films. What is it about short films that you really like doing that you've made so many of them? Well, well, I think a lot of times with the short films, it's basically because uh, you may not have the money to make a feature film, or you right. may not have the time or the uh, right people. So, so I think the things with short films is that they're so small, usually in comparison to a feature film that it give you something that you can actually do and finish and get out and kind of work on your craft. So for me, that's been the reason why I've done a lot of short films. Now, you, you have done some feature, like your first one was uh, Out of Touch in 1995, right? That yeah, that was a big film. <laughs> that was a 140, uh, let me get this right, 184-page script. Wow. Which, you know, it's usually a script, uh, a minute a page. So... Right. That's almost unfilmable. I mean, that's insane. And so uh, it ended up being a 132-minute movie when we finished editing it and took certain things out. But uh, that took a year. That took a whole year to shoot that movie. On weekends, we shot it in New Jersey, New York City, Staten Island, Long Island, um, 
I cast my actors. I was going to actor school, acting school at the time at HB Studios in Manhattan. So I cast most of my actors from that school. Um, and it was a lot of fun, but I remember it was really hard. I mean, a year to keep people's interest a year, to people look different over a year, people's interest can wane over a year. That was a tough project. Yeah, no kidding. That was your first major uh, feature film. You know, how how was that experience? How, how do you compare that experience being your very, very first time making a full feature film compared to like making one now where you've already gone through the trials a couple times? I think you learn a lot. You make a lot of mistakes. Um, and you does don't... it get easier at any point? has to, right? Yeah, yeah it, it does, but yeah, it's always hard. I mean, it's really weird, but when you make a movie, there's so many things that affect the uh, the film. I mean, you're talking about the actors on what's going on in their lives. You know, uh, Obviously, the money to make the movie, the equipment, the people that help you work on the film, whether it's makeup artists or still photographers or cinematographers you know, editors, production designers, all these people. It's just, uh, you know, you would think it gets easier. I mean, look, look, when John Carpenter made Halloween, it was the most successful independent film ever made. He shot it in 21 days at a $325,000 budget. We turn around and make The Fog after that, and the experience was so bad, he almost quit directing. So oh, you go from a guy, a guy who you feel knows everything about making a movie, because if you look at Halloween, it's almost perfect. And he made a movie after that, which he felt didn't work. And he had to actually go back and reshoot just to make it work. And he almost quit directing after that. So, you know, to answer your question, you think it gets easier, but it, it really doesn't. I mean, it's always hard. I guess it, it's also based on the project. Like, the bigger the project, I guess, the, the more challenges are going to come your way. And the harder it's going to be, I guess, until you learn just how to do big projects, small projects. It doesn't matter, I guess, at that point. Yeah, you know, I I think it's, I mean, look at Wes Craven. Wes Craven made uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and then he makes Vampire in Brooklyn with oh, Eddie man, yeah. <laughs> a huge budget. A stuntman dies on the film, yeah. and the movie turned out to be terrible, you know. So, and then a couple years later, he made Scream, which was right. a huge success. So, I, I think it actually, it doesn't, it probably doesn't matter the budget. It probably really just matters, like, everything combined. Like, who are the people involved? How's your crew? How's your shooting schedule? Is it enough time to do everything? Do you have enough money? I mean, all those things just factor into it. And um, it's just like some things you like kind of blessed or you're cursed. I mean, it's really weird the way it can all play out. Now, out of uh, all, like, people can get these movies on uh, on DVD. Are any of these movies on DVD yet, or you haven't done the transfer on them? Well, Is you that... know, uh, uh, the movie I did uh, called Hair of the Dog, which is actually was written by Tim Clark and produced by Tim Clark who's going to be a part of the next film I'm making, amongst a couple other people, uh, we actually got distributed by IndieRoad.net, which was one of the first probably ind independent internet release companies, and they released it straight to the net. And uh. I, guess, I guess it wasn't successful enough, not, only, not necessarily our movie, but that company, the way they did it, right. and they ended up uh, you know, not surviving, but that when it was distributed on the... On a, I guess you could say a worldwide platform. Um, Evil Streets, when I made a movie, Evil Streets, back in 98, which had three films kind of similar to Twilight Zone or Creepshow, um, we independently distributed that film, and it went all over the whole world, but we did it ourselves. So it wasn't like a big, giant release. But I know that people in Germany and Europe and maybe even Asia have copies of that movie, um, and we definitely made back our money. We, um, a little bit of a profit so 
Um, that was nice. But we have I've never had one go out really big, and that's the only goal and the sole goal for the next film we do, which is the one I'm going to make next. Now, what's the name of the movie you're working on now? Uh, the film I'm going to do next is called Devils Five. And Devils, Devils Five, okay. Five, yeah, Devils, you know, it's D-E-V-I-L, apostrophe S, five. If you write that out, F-I-V-E, you can look us up on Facebook. You can like our page. We update it weekly with stuff from every director involved. And right now the screen plays are actually being written and developed. Um, and that film is going to have five stories, 20 minutes each story. Um, there's five different directors. Um, I'm going to direct one that Tim Clark is writing. My friend Thad Bird, who's actually the originator of the whole project, he's in Seattle, and he wrote and is going to direct and actually star in his episode. And then my friend Brian Weiss, who's a Hollywood full-time Hollywood stuntman slash stunt coordinator slash director-producer, he's going to direct... So the- a lot of slashes. Oh, yeah, the guy's... <laughs> out of all of us, he's the guy who works on film full-time all the time. That's his only job. Whether he's on Spider-Man 2 or I just did Transformers, the new Transformers film... Um, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Actually, we're joined by a caller. Uh, like I said, we, we're going to have open lines, uh, Terry. Uh, so, uh, you know, be ready for, for callers. Uh, caller 425, you're on the air. Please be polite. Please be nice. And uh, you're on the air with Terry Wickham. Can't expect me to be nice with Terry Wickham. <laughs> hey, this, this, this is Thad calling. Hey, uh, and, and Terry, uh, Thad Bird. Terry, i got to correct you. Halloween wasn't shot in 21 days. It was 21 days with two days of pickups. Okay, ah. That's how much of a geek I am when it comes yes. to like John Carpenter films and stuff. So, anyways, what? I'm I'm the one that uh, I'm co-executive producer with Terry on Devils Five, and I'm oh, cool. um, directing one of the episodes along with Terry. Very nice, very nice. And uh, you guys are in pre-production on this right now, or you already have shot something? Yeah, we're we're in pre-production. Um, I have my script pretty much ready to go. Terry's is under construction. Um, I'm really. By the way, I'm really, really excited about the one that Terry's going to do. It's really, really cool. In fact, in fact, I told Terry, I, I, I got the whole idea to do this when I, I had a nightmare and I had an idea for an anthology film, and um, I knew it wouldn't be a feature film, so I knew it'd be kind of short. And so I was watching VHS, and I was like, "Hey, that's a great idea. I wonder if we could do it, but tie everything in together so it's all cohesive." And so I contacted Terry. And so I started doing my script, and I thought my script was, was pretty cool. But then when Terry, you know, when I heard what Terry wanted to do, I was like, oh, man, mine's not as good. <laughs> so, so, so I had to go back and, you know, you know T- Terry and I are great, though. We work really well together. We've been, we've been working on each other's stuff for years. And so, you know, he sees things I don't see, and, and I see things he doesn't see. And so I went back and rewrote my script. It's better, but um, I, I'm, I'm honestly really stoked to see what Terry's going to do with this. Um, so, well, hopefully that's going to happen uh, very, very soon. We're looking at maybe January, February on that. That is so cool. And what's your story uh, going to be about? Can you tell us anything about, about it at all? Yeah, sure. Um, mine's called The Devil You Know. And in a nutshell, it's about a guy who's about 40 years old who um, was p- demonically possessed as a as a young teen, like a 13-year-old, and successfully, you know, exercise and all that kind of stuff. 
and years later, the demon comes back to kind of finish the job. And Very so nice. I, uh, I'm not an actor, but I kind of like, I realized the character was kind of me, kind of a, uh, I don't want to say like I'm real successful, but a less successful version of myself. And um, I decided I was going to play it, and so the character has to be in shape, and so I've literally been working out to the P90X. <laughs> you know, <and> that's, <laughs> ah, nice, you know, that'll work. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in my 40s, and, and trust me, it's, it's really hard. It's, it's easy to start. You know, anyone who's interested in P90X, it's not as hard as you think, except the, the first one I ever did, the first time I did it, I, when I got done, I threw up almost. Um, but it gets easier. But it's uh, a lot harder in your 40s to lose weight, I'm finding. It's hard at any age, believe me. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's never easy, my friends. Never easy. That sounds really cool, though. You wrote for yourself, just admit it. You know, you wanted to be in this real ba- really bad. Yeah, yeah, because there's like a love interest in in the uh, in the movie that's like 20, and so (laughs) they say if you're ever going to direct yourself in something, you know, you always write in the you know the hot young the hot youngies. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's kind of like living a a midlife crisis on film. Right, right. But you know, I've always the the nice thing. um, I don't if 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 Terry said anything. I kind of caught the tail end of what he was saying, but. I got my start directing music videos in the 90s. I'm I'm here in Seattle, Washington. So it's right during the height of the whole, you know, Seattle music scene. Mm. And um, one of the bands, actually the first band I worked with was Alice in Chains. And I started working with, yeah, it was was pretty neat. It was kind of cool because they, uh, they were in a movie that I did. And their deal to me was they were the biggest hair band in Seattle. They were like all proud of that. And so that was their big selling point. And they were kind of glam rock. And they were Alice um, N, like the letter N, Chains. And then it later became Alice in Chains. And um, so I kind of springboarded from that. But then I found every job got harder and harder and harder. So then I tried to develop feature films, and that was really hard. And years later, I went back and I bought myself a you know, Super 16 motion picture package and learned how to shoot. And so I started getting some jobs as a cinematographer and kind of have you know, shot commercials, industrials, things like that, and uh, now we're coming up on doing Devil's Five. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's awesome. And you guys are looking for a major release to Devil's Five, right? You're looking for something that's going to at least uh, maybe stream on like Netflix or something like that? Is that an idea you guys are going with? Y- yeah, if I can speak for, for us, Terry. <laughs> I think Terry, oh, yeah. Terry well, will agree. Yeah, th- that, was, that was the whole thing because... Um, you know, I, I heard Terry talking about how hard it is to make movies, and um, the, the the reality is, there's you know you can get real like everyone who's been doing it for a while has had a deal. I know Terry has had a signed deal um, for a film that had quite you know pretty pretty nice budget, but you know you get to a certain point, you work on it, you work on it, and then just for whatever reason, like I had a uh, I had a movie deal. It was a vampire film. Uh, it was about 1997, 98. And it wasn't a whole lot. It was about $3 million. But to me, that was like all the money in the world. And then I got a call from, from the executive producer, and he said there's too many vampire films this year. I think like Blade had come out, John Carpenter's Vampires, some other mm. stuff. And so, boom, just like that. And I had really worked hard, and I had a signed contract, the whole deal, and I was very disillusioned at that point. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to be about, I mean, to be like a filmmaker as in the verb, 
you know, like right. you're making films. You can say I'm a filmmaker, but the reality is a lot of people don't make films for years and years and years. And so, you know, you want to be kind of more of that verb. That's what you should shoot for. So whether you do that film digitally, you know, just pick up a camera. And so that's kind of where Devil's Five came in a little bit. You know, it's funny because you guys are, you know, talking about how hard it is to get films done to, and put films out there. Do you find that it's that, that whole thing is changing a little bit now with the way streaming technology is kind of taking over? Not just about anybody can make a film and put it out there? I think, right. I, I, think, I think that that's partially true. But, I, and I, but one of the things I think about that is that it's actually... It, it works for and against the filmmaker because so many people mm. can do it so easily... I think that we get films that are not always good, and you know, you know, <laughs> that's true. Maybe, maybe the better way of saying it is, it's kind of hard to a make, lot of a lot of garbage comes out. It's just to call yeah, it the way it is. <laughs> it, it's probably very difficult to make a good film. Mm-hmm. It might be kind of easy to make a film, but to make a film that's really worthwhile, it takes a lot of effort and time. I remember when the guy was his name that made a sinister. Um, he said that it's very difficult to make a good horror film. I know you could say any film, but we're kind of making scary movies. So, um, But I remember he said it's very difficult. And I think the guys who take it seriously and that really care about it and know about it, they they know it's not easy. You know? Yeah, no kidding. You know, without mentioning any names or anything, I had a, a film producer come to me a few months back. And uh, he asked me if I could score a movie because, you know, I do a little music here and there. I dabble. And he asked me if I could do a little score for one of uh, a film that he had just shot. And he go and he brings the movie over and he's like, okay, it's a rough cut. I just, you know, this is the first cut. Please don't judge until the music is done and this and that. And then I started, like, asking him a couple questions as I'm watching the video. And I'm like, did you guys script this out in storyboard? And he's like, actually, no, we worked with no script at all. <laughs> and, I, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, you could tell there's no script on this thing because... It's it's really really bad, man. It's a, like one of the worst indie movies I ever seen, and you can tell there was no script involved in this thing. And as I'm watching the entire film, there's some scenes that need to be redone or redubbed over. So he had actors come in and redo their lines that they had done originally without a script, mind you. Oh, I don't know how that works. He said he had the whole movie in his head, man. He's one of these artsy guys. Oh, the whole thing is in my head, and it's just I have the vision, man. And then he brings the the actor over, and the actor's like, I don't even know my lines. I have no idea what I'm going to say in this. So we had to, like, watch the film over and over, and it's excruciatingly bad, you know, to the point that I dropped out of the project. It was it was so bad. And the actors, which I found was really funny, they, they would turn to me every single time. One of them that came in said the same thing. He's like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Wow. And... Like the actors were in it were ashamed that they were in this movie. It was the funniest experience ever. And it's safe to say I didn't score the movie. I dropped out of the project just because it was not something I wanted to deal with. But how many projects like that do you think get done today, uh, Terry? Or I mean, how, how do you think? Do you think that happens often? Uh, well, I I think it probably does. I know I've had some friends work on situations like that where they told me going in they they got excited because it looked like a gig, and I I, I know a few friends that had situations like that. And then later on, they were disorganized, they didn't have a plan, you know, things went by the wayside, and eventually the films didn't get made, or they came out and they were terrible. So, you know, I think that's probably, it's probably common, Um, but, you know, that's not the way way I work, and I know it's not the way Thad works. Can can I quote Shakespeare? I mean, Shakespeare said the play is the thing, kind of referring to, uh, you know, the story is everything. I think if you you don't have a budget... Like, Terry and I, um, you know, 
if we had a budget for Devils Five, like a like a mainstream budget, of course I would take it. Right. But um, we don't need it, and so we we realized that you know the story has to be a lot stronger than say if someone came to us with half a million, two hundred thousand, even um, because it can't just you know there's so many films that that get made, they get distributed, but then they're just product. They're just like you watch them, and it's kind of like the equivalent of going to McDonald's, you know? Right. Um, so, but the thing, I, the thing about t- last year, I shot second unit on a real low budget independent film. I came in for a day to help out the producer and director, and um, they their first film they actually made money with. It was very low budget. I think they shot it for fifty, sixty thousand dollars, something like that. But they made money with it. But they told me what's happening now in the film industry, and I, you can kind of see this. There's a greater divide. You have like the the, the mega budget films that are going like 150, 200 million, even above that, and then you have the micro budgeted films that, on an independent level, they're offering like maybe 50,000. That's about all. So so the trick is, if you know you can get about 50, maybe 60,000, can you make it for 10? You know, make a little bit of profit. It's not. It's not the, the days of like having a Halloween that shot for what is it like three twenty five or something. Like, I, yes. I, I think it's three twenty five. I think you said three twenty one, but I think it's three twenty five ish. And then go out and make sixty million in its initial box off. Well, actually, in the the first two years, those days are kind of gone, which is kind of sad. The Blair Witch days are kind of gone, even I think. Yeah, Blair Witch was such an anomaly, though. I mean, that movie made such an incredible amount of money. Um, I know. And it, it really, if you want to talk about amateur filmmaking or looking like amateur filming, that's it right there, because they literally just handicapped the whole thing. I mean, <laughs> that was, that, they weren't even trying, I think, and that made so much money. But it goes into, like, you know, what me and other used to talk a lot about is uh, the marketing yeah. of these films. And that's really where it, it all stands. It's, it's how you market the, the film. If you have even a, a crappy product, if you market it properly, it, you know, it could take off. Look at the Blair Witch. Perfect example. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the first found footage movie. Um, I, I, I think I think ha- Cannibal Holocaust that came out in I believe 1979, 1980 is much is a much better film. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's 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 really good. I I think anyway. Sadly, but, um, I I've seen it. Yes. It's... Yeah, yeah, but the Blair Witch. I I think you know it's right before a lot of the social media. I think it came out in was it like 99 right. something like that. So it was, like, really fresh, and it was just, like, people were ready for something totally different. And then once they, you know, once they consume that, they go on to the next thing, you know. It's kind of like a, a locust or something, I Yeah, guess. which is, you know, it's funny, because that was done on, on really cheap budget, you know, the handheld camera and everything. Then they made an actual studio film for the follow-up, The Blair Witch Project 2, which had a bigger budget, looked like a movie, and that bombed. Yeah, yeah that, that was actually know, $10 million, I think. Yeah, and it was different. Different director, and the thing about uh, the Blair Witch guys who made the first film, proof that it was all the marketing and not their filmmaking ability is, you truly haven't heard from those guys since. Yeah, ever. So, so it was really, like you said, an anomaly. And to me, it wasn't a case of great filmmaking. It was a great. It was a case of great marketing. I mean, because I, but- I saw, I saw the movie. I think I told the story once on one of the outside uh, shows I was on, but. I saw Blair Witch at a, at a really early preview. I was writing for FearsMag.com at the time, and me and a couple of the other editors and writers from the magazine got invited to a premiere. Now, that movie came out, I believe, in June of 1999, and because it came out about a week before The Sixth Sense. We saw it in March. 
Well, actually, it came out in July, I believe, July 16th. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so yeah. so I saw it in March. Okay. So I saw it about, you know, a good few months before it came out. And I remember when I saw it, uh, I liked the setup and the idea and everything. But to me, it just made no sense, the payoff and everything. So so uh, I guess I got so interested because everyone told me it was a Sundance hit and all these people were talking about it and stuff like that. So the hype was really high. But I think the product in itself, when I saw it, I was a little disappointed. You know, you know, Terry, I remember talking to you about that when you saw it. And you know what you told me? What's that? You said, nothing happens. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> and, 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 Literally, yeah, nothing know. happens. That's accurate. Nothing does happen. It's, like, it's an hour of nothingness. It's like, really? An hour yeah. and 30 minutes of nothing. Yeah, and, and the and camera that, falls at the end. I'm like, that's it? <laughs> and actually, though, Terry, um, the, one of the directors, Ed, Eduardo Sanchez, I hope I'm not mastering his name, um, he actually has done some pretty good stuff. If if anyone has not seen the movie Altered, oh, I like that. But yeah, but you know what I meant. I, I, I meant like in a public film knowledge uh, success. We and we we may have seen that, and I've seen actually a couple of his other films, but I don't think they've made any films that anybody else really knows about. Other than, than it's quirky, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, but when your movie makes $248 million worldwide on a $60,000 budget, uh, it doesn't matter. You could do whatever the heck you want for the rest of your life and just uh, hang out and chill and be happy. You know, right, right. You, don't, you don't have to continue to make big budget movies. You don't have to make anything. You just relax at home with the family. You made $248 million on a $60,000. I'm sure they got a good cut of all that money. They're, they're not hurting for money right now. No, and I'm not I'm not disputing that, but you know, this goes back this goes back to what you said early in our conversation. Yeah. When how easy or how hard it is to make films after the first one. And the truth is look at those guys. Yeah. I mean, they haven't had anything that really hit Gaines Busters or anything like or a big profile movie. I sure they've tried. I, I know they both individually have made movies, but look, they made a huge success film and, and they haven't had it easy, right? No, it's true. It's very true. Now they, they've done a couple other projects here and there, but yeah, nothing, uh, nothing to that extent. Even though wasn't um, wasn't have you ever seen the the movie Solstice? Wasn't that directed by one of the, by uh, Daniel Myrick? I believe is the name. Oh, the, that's isn't that the one uh, that takes place in Iraq or Afghanistan? It's, Maybe it's I'm wrong. A, it, it, no, no, no. It's um. Man, it's about a twin sister who has some kind of a, who commits suicide. It's a weird movie. I haven't oh, okay. seen. I haven't I seen, seen that it. one yet. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's it's a weird independent movie that came out. I, mean, I think that's probably like the best movie they've come out. That came out in '08 or '09. Okay, it had a pretty decent cast. Um, Sean Ashmore from X Men. I think uh, I think he's the one in X Men. He's one of the Ashmore twins. Was oh. in that. So a decent cast. I mean, it wasn't like a, a horrible movie either. It was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. They really just kind of like laid low and not really done much since that movie, which is kind of weird because you would expect the buzz from that movie to be you know tremendous for them for the next project. Oh yeah, you would think so. Yeah, I, I, I think it's unfortunate. I I was just gonna say I think it's unfortunate they had to do a Blair Witch too because actually I think that movie's quite good. The only problem was it had nothing really to do with the first one and it was so off scale different from the first one uh it was really rejected in the marketplace but it has some really scary moments i think i um, actually stephen king has also said that he really likes that movie a lot yeah but it was just so different and it like, really pissed off the fan base from there <laughs> right really just like was, return yeah. of the living dead 3 <laughs> right yeah it was just it was too much of a departure and you know it's funny because i've had 
conversations with people about like the paranormal activity movies for example and they've often told me well why don't they make like a regular movie for like one of the sequels i'm like because it'll lose you know the whole the whole like luster of like what paranormal activity movies are which is like, the, the whole handheld camera or they the, not handheld but like the video camera format of uh like being stationary somewhere like like if it's really just a camera at the house you know that kind of feel is what they're going for and it, you would lose that feel if you have a regular movie and that's really what they're doing that and that's another project that really took off and they've spun like i don't i don't know how many sequels now and they've all made a lot of money so imagine if they would have made another Blair Witch in the same vein, the same style as the original. Might have done a lot better. Well, yeah, you know, I, and I, I think a lot of times filmmakers think of themselves as artists too much. I mean, in, in the end, you're kind of selling widgets. So, you know, just like um, the example I like to use is when Boeing was planning on doing the triple seven. Boeing actually is up here where I live. But anyway, um, they went out to all the airlines to ask them for their input. And there were several major airlines like United that, you know, gave them a lot of input they never would have known. So they kind of tailor-made it based off um, of what their customer's input was. And so when the triple seven rolled off the assembly lines, it was a huge success because they already know who their customers were. And I think filmmakers, they make a film first that, you know, you spend all this money, you get all these resources, you make your product, and then you, you go out to find if there's anyone who is even buying your product. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to um, to do a gothic, you know, ghost film if everyone wants, you know, like, I don't know, slasher films. See, so it would, right. make, it would make no sense. So I think it's really important that you need to go out and research the market first and know, you know, who's buying what. I mean, is there is who's going to buy this? And then well, Taylor make well, it that, in, in relation to that, uh, yeah. Maybe you could tell uh, Jackal and his audience how Devil's Five actually came to be. I know you mentioned the other part, but wasn't it based on a conversation you had with a couple of filmmakers that were successful at doing found footage movies? Yeah, and then yeah, what they said. I, tell tell, yeah, tell the story. Yeah, I kind of alluded to that. I just kind of <laughs> this is going to sound really cheesy, so I apologize in advance. But um, I, I, I saw this, I'm a part of a filmmaking board here in, in Seattle, and I saw this, um, this ad that said, you know, they need a cinematographer right away to shoot some pickup shots, you know, must be okay with nudity. <laughs> and so I was like, well. oh, that, that sounds like fun. No, but th- th- actually that, that's true. But I, um, I called them up, and these guys were really, really intelligent. One of them was a um, former talk show host on the radio, in fact, I think he still ah. is in Montana. But um, they were the ones I, that I was talking about who had um, sold their first film, been very successful about it. And then they, right. they were asking other distributors, you know, what are you looking for? And it was the found footage movies. You know, people couldn't mm. get enough of that. And so I was working on their second feature, which is a really cool alien abduction film. And uh, we were shooting a bunch of little vignettes for it. And... Um, so that's that's why they did it. Now they had aspirations to do more like, um, you know, they wanted to talk to me about shooting something on film. I don't know if that's going to be viable because Kodak just went out of business. I'm kind of sad about that. But you know, they kind of aspired more towards the bigger budgets. But you know, they wanted to be working filmmakers, and so they learned what the market w- was would bear, and so that's the direction they went. That's why they did that. Yeah, found footage is still very popular. It, it really is. And if it's done right, it's it's really really cool. Yeah. Uh, it, and Terry's not as big a fan of of the VHS movies as I am, and they're they're obviously flawed, you know, in certain ways because 
you know, sometimes the stories are not as coherent as you'd like, but right. maybe they're going for, you know, truly the found footage vein. But they're fun, and, and they're scary, and they deliver the goods. And I, um, I just watched VHS 2 last night with a bunch of 14-year-olds, <laughs> Boy, they loved it. <laughs> if ever there was a film that's tailor-made for 14-year-old boys, that is it. Because they don't care. They don't care about the nuances of story and stuff like right. that. They just, you know, and it's, I, I don't know, there, there's, it, it kind of bums me out that people don't really invest in films as much in terms of watching them, you know, character development and all that kind of stuff. They want it now. They want it loud. You know, they want it boom, 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 boom. And, um... That's kind of where that's it's the, at. That's so. the ADD generation we're in right now that we're living in. Hey, that's a good way to put it. That's exactly yeah. it. So, um, so, so what Terry and I are trying to kind of, you know, obviously we want to cater to that market because that's that's who would buy the product. But right. um, we also, hey, we want to throw in some of our own ideas and have some cool stuff and have it tie together, have it satisfying for us. Because I think, in the end, if you don't make films that satisfy you on some level, then you'll just be a crappy filmmaker. I, I mean, you know, any product, even if you sell out, you know, you're doing, you know, if you get to the level of doing a studio film, if you're just doing it for a paycheck, you know, those, those are the worst kind of films. There's got to be some reason to do it. There's got to be something that gets you up in the morning. You know, I, I don't think there's any filmmaker that sets out to make a bad movie, even the ones who sell out, quote-unquote, to the studios. Like, for example, I've gotten into this discussion with friends who, you know, I hate Batman and Robin, the movie. That's, I hate oh. that movie. One of the worst films ever made in the history of film. But I don't think that Joel Schumacher literally got up in the morning and said, you know what, today I'm going to go to the studio, I'm going to make a bad movie. Like, I don't think that crossed his mind. Like, while he was making the movie, he probably thought this was going to be good. You, you know, you know, I, and I, I, it's funny you mention that film because I have a theory about that. I think when you have someone like Joe Schumacher who's done some very, very successful films, you have kind of what I call the Emperor's New Clothes Syndrome, mm. where no one wants to tell Joe Schumacher it's a bad idea. So when he goes to the production designer and says, hey, how about you put some nipples on that Batman suit? They're like, <laughs> oh, that'd be great. You know, see what I'm saying? And, and so I, don't, I think you have all these yes men and yes women, and they don't want to yeah. tell the director, God, what a bad idea. And so then he's, he's, you know, when the film comes out, he's standing buck naked. And everyone's laughing at him. That's, you know, people got to be honest. You have to be honest. But, you know, you don't want to hurt people's feelings, but you get a lot of that. And, and I found, um, actually, it was very strange. When, when I directed my first music video, up to that point, I had never done anything professionally. I'd just done my own, my own little films, you know. And I spent the first half of the day thinking I was going to get fired because I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to find out that I'm a fraud. And people would come up to me and they'd say, Thad, what do you think we should do here? And, and I honestly didn't have a clue. And I would just make something up. Hey, we should do this. And they'd go, wow, that's a great idea. And it was really strange because I don't like people kissing my butt. And I, it was just a weird feeling that everyone was doing that um, when I was kind of winging it. But, it, you know, it turned out okay. But I think, you know, when you go on the bigger levels, the bigger budgets, Boy, the, the the ass kissing gets that much bigger. I mean, you can just imagine. Yeah, no kidding. I, I have nipples I, on Batman suits. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, and I, I also think I also think on the big budget films. I don't know this firsthand, but just from what I've heard from people, I also think like what Thad was saying is true. When you're a big director and you're spending a lot of money by on those films by the minute, I remember I was talking to someone that worked on Terminator Two. He was a stunt stunt guy or uh, I think he was a driver and I said what was it like with work with Jim Cameron and they said well 
who's one of my two favorite directors, he said, if you have an idea, he'll listen to it. And if he uses it and you're wrong and you just cost the production time and money, he will not only berate you in front of everyone, hmm. but there's a good chance you're you, you'll, you'll lose your job. So I think that people probably also fear making suggestions or doing yeah, things you, yeah. because they're afraid to lose their job or to get you know uh, ridiculed. Yeah, and that happened a lot to the uh, to folks who were on board with Star Wars, the prequels, with George Lucas also. I'm sure way too many yes men and not enough people saying, George, uh, Jar Jar, maybe not a good idea, you think. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you, you, should you we tone it down me? a little bit? <laughs> you you, you want to know what shocked me, though? When when I first, um, so I kind of have like, two, well, three parts to my to my filmmaking career. My my first part where I was truly an amateur, didn't really know what I was doing, but kind of learned as I went. And then I literally talked myself on to my onto a set on getting my first job directing music videos. And I actually got pretty good at that. That was the second part. And then the third phase started when I started um, doing some cinematography. And then, you know, I directed my own stuff as well. But um, only my own camera got me onto film sets. Hmm. And the thing that really shocked me is there's a lot of incompetence, even on, like, union films. I worked on one film in particular that's... I don't want to mention it. It, it played at Sundance, and apparently it got a a standing ovation, but it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And it had, it had a cast that you would recognize, and it was a union film, and the DP had worked for me as a gaffer in my early days as uh, doing music videos, and he was really good. He'd work on stuff, I, well, actually, I don't want to give out too much, but he'd, he'd work on, on you know, really, really big projects. But he was horrible as a DP, and, and everyone around him seemed incompetent, and it seemed like the movie they were making was just, horrible the lighting was horrible the camera angles were horrible everything was just i, I was just amazed at how incompetent people were and they um, got a standing ovation at cans really yeah seriously if, if you saw this film you would uh, you know, I, I i think i think maybe there's like a crowd mentality i i i don't know because i haven't been there but it's possible there's a crowd mentality that everyone thinks it's going to be great and so you know again it's the emperor's new clothes Right. No one wants to say, hey, I think this is a piece of crap, because then you're not in the know, and if you're not in the right. know, you're not cool. Yo, you know, something similar happened to me back in the 90s. I don't know if you guys remember Planet Hollywood. Remember that place? Yeah. <laughs> is that still around? They're, they're, no, I think they're defunct already. They're done. But back in the 90s, when they were still around, they had one in Coconut Grove down here in Miami. And me and a buddy of mine went out to see a movie that night at the theater right next to Planet Hollywood. And they were premiering the movie The Pest for John Leguizamo, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but it's a comedy. It's kind of like Ace Ventura-ish, or he's you know kind of that kind of character, really goofy comedy, you know, very slapstick comedy. And we go to the theater just uh, you know goofing around. I used to work at the movie theaters back then, so I could always get in free wherever I went. And I went in, and we walk in, and literally like every poster in the wall was the movie The Pest, and we we're like, holy crap, this is going to be like the greatest film ever made. Like, there's like. <laughs> 20 theaters all playing The Pest. This is incredible. And we're walking around, and we're like, what's going on here? And my friend, who was, who was a manager at the theater, tells me, oh, no, no, they're premiering the movie. They're going to have a big party later on at Planet Hollywood next door. It's you know a big event. You know, it's the first time they premiere a movie here at Coco Walk. You know, It's a big deal. So he goes, you want to go see it? Go check out the movie. So we go in, me and my friend, to see The Pest. And the movie ends, and I look at my friend, and he looks at me, and we're like, we just saw probably the worst comedy ever made. Like, there's <laughs> very few jokes that land and actually make you laugh in this movie. It's like, very, very bad, you know? And then all of a sudden, we see people stand up and start applauding, and we're like, wait a second, we're what? in the Twilight Zone. People are <laughs> clapping, and we're like, 
is this, are we being punked? Is it, and this was before punk ever existed. But we looked at each other and we're like, is this the Twilight Zone? What's going on? And then it turned out that John Leguizamo was there. And he was part of the audience. He was sitting down. He was there with Jennifer Lopez. A bunch of like celebrities were there. We had no clue. Like we literally were walking out. Like what the hell's going on? Like this is bizarre. You know, bizarre behavior. And as we walk out, we see John Leguizamo and all them walk out. And we're like, oh no wonder people are clapping. Nobody wants to be rude and not clap or say this movie sucks, which is really what they should have said because it was a really bad movie. But John Leguizamo, super nice guy, by the way. Just got a name drop. Really nice guy. Got to meet him. We hung out at Planet Hollywood. Who's Aces, man. Can't say nothing bad about the guy. But the movie was terrible. Terrible, well, you know, terrible movie. You know, that, you know, something I wanted to throw in here since we were talking Devil's Five is me and Thad um, are definitely opposite of that, even as friends. We will tell each other what we think is good or yes. bad. And, of course, you know, when it all comes down to it, um, whether it's his script or my script, we both have to be the uh, ultimate author of those. But when he came to me at Devil's Five, he had a, an idea to... It was basically the device on what these films would hinge around. Um, whereas, like, say, VHS, it's the videotapes, and they watch them, and those, those are the movies. So Dad came with this one idea, and I told him straight out, pretty much, that I thought that it was, uh, that I thought there could be something better. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I didn't just say, yes, let's do it. I, I said, you know, I'm intrigued, but let me think about it. And after I thought about it, I just thought that his idea, not that he was trying to ape VHS, but was kind of similar. And I also think that found footage, not this isn't Thad's idea, but as a whole, found footage movies, one of the things that really bothers me, it, you know, as a journalist, I review a lot of them. As a fan, I see them. I, I think that usually because there's no money usually, that the idea is really, really tiny. Right. And even if you have no money... I think you can make a bigger idea. And so when I thought about Thad's idea, I thought it kind of fell a little bit into that trap. And I thought, you know, how can I make it bigger? So I, I for some reason, because we're found footage and we're restricted to that style, even though I'm going to kind of try to screw with that a little bit, um, I came up with this idea and I, I presented it to Thad. And, you know, you could tell him your reaction to it, Thad, but right away you were like, this is better than the idea I had. Well, yeah, and it's, um, I, I think if any, you know, aspiring filmmakers or filmmakers are listening right now, um, you know, Terry and I have both been making films in one, one form or another, another over 20 years, and I think the most important thing is, you know, don't doubt yourself, do not listen to what other, I mean, you kind of take what people have with a grain of salt, but if you really feel strongly about something, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's, well, if it's Steven Spielberg, listen to him. But uh, short of that, <laughs> seriously, so some, of the, some of the worst advice I've ever gotten came from um, the producers that I was working with that had done some pretty big stuff. And, uh, you know, what it came down to is they didn't know any better than I did. Hmm. And so, um, you know, don't, don't second-guess yourself. I mean, like I was talking earlier about how I was shocked when I started getting on the movie sets at how incompetent some things were. Now, right. Maybe it was, the, it was the, the level of the budget, you know, maybe on big budget stuff. It's, it's rare that you see really bad photography and big, big budget stuff. Right. But the point is, all, all these people, they could talk circles around me because they, they, they knew all the jargon. They knew a lot of more of the technical stuff. But aesthetically, they didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't make a, an image that was really pleasing. They didn't know that much about you know, making really good lighting. 
um, creating a mood. And, um, you know, it's it was kind of an eye-opener. And so I would say, you know, to anyone who wants to make movies, just go out and do it. You know, pay close attention to what's come before you. Try to, you know, try to learn as much as you can. But ultimately, you just have to do it. So, why did you agree with me when I told you I thought that your original idea wasn't as good as the one I had come up with? What, what, <laughs> what made you agree to that? What? Because you threatened to walk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, okay. So, 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 if anyone wants to direct, here's the most here's the most important thing. It is impossible to have all the good ideas in your head. It, it's right. impossible. You never know where a good idea is going to come from. It's almost right. like being um, a manager, um, or you know, where, where you can you, you need to know how to take this idea, this idea, this idea, and how to make it fit, you know, into the best overall project. And right. so you don't need to have the best ideas, but to be a good director, you need to recognize the best ideas. That, that's the key. And you have to recognize that you're not going to have the best ideas. You don't know where, it's, where, there's gonna, where they're going to come from. But sometimes, you know, when you're shooting, sometimes it's more important not to have the best ideas but to get it done. You know, it really, it really depends on, you know, the budget constraints, the time constraints, um, so you also need to know when to dial it off as well. Right. But certainly in the pre-production phase, you know, when you're when you're developing your story, you really can't have a thick skin. You really have to be flexible, and you need to recognize a good idea. And so Terry and I do that to each other all the time. Um, we don't have much of an ego going back and forth. If something's a good idea, we don't care who has it because it makes the project better. And so he's always helped me on my scripts. I've always helped him on his. And this is actually the first time we've officially worked together, so it'll be kind of cool. But, that, you know, that's it, you know. Kind of put your ego on hold and look at what's going to serve the project the best, I'd say. And have that determination, I'm sure, to, to continue on, even if you get somebody who doesn't believe in your project and just continue forward and still work on on projects. I mean, you know, you guys brought up uh, Nightmare on Elm Street earlier, and that, there's a project that went through a couple of studios before it landed on New Line Cinema and became what it became. But studios heard that, you know, originally, and they were like, ah, we don't think that's going to work, Wes. He, Nobody, he like, got... Yeah, people didn't believe in that project, amazingly enough. He, actually, Wes Craven got some very, very cruel rejection letters. I don't know if yeah. you... On one of the, uh, I don't know if it's on the Blu-ray, but on the Laserdisc, um, he, he actually has his rejection letters, and yeah. people were, like, really just cruel about it, unnecessarily. Like... <laughs> And it turned out to be one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street to me is still, to this day, one of the finest pieces of horror movies from the 80s. Definitely. I remember seeing it with, with a couple guys that were older than me, like 10 years older than me, and one of them was actually cowering in his seat as he watched it. <laughs> I remember thinking that was kind of odd, but yeah, literally cowering in his seat. So, yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, great movie. Launched a lot of careers. George Lucas is another one. He went through a couple of different uh, studios for Star Wars. Can you imagine being like Fox and turning down, or being one of these studios that turned down Star Wars and then seeing what that became? Yeah, that would suck. Well, well, oh my goodness. I, I read a I read a really good book this year, written by William Friedkin, the Exorcist director, and he was saying early in his book. I think I even read this to Thad over the phone, but he was saying that he actually got offered. Uh, the opportunity to, in to invest or be a producer on Star Wars, he read it and he goes, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think it's <laughs> successful. And he turned it down 
and you know we all know where Star Wars turned out to. He's the same guy who, in I think the first paragraph of the book, said he got a drawing from some guy named Bisquade or whatever, and he, he gave it to him in his production office, and he looked at it. He said, "I'm a big fan of your films." He looked at the drawing, he threw it in the garbage. He said, "Now one of those drawings from that time is worth like fifteen million dollars." <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I'm, that's why I've become a hoarder. Anytime somebody gives me anything, I just like put it away. And I don't throw it away. <laughs> and, and he also said he got a cassette tape sent to him in the mail from some young composer, and he got the, he listened to the song. It was like some disco songs, and he's like, "That's not my thing." He, this is when he was making the movie Cruising with Al Pacino, 1980, I guess. And he threw the cassette in the garbage. It was from Prince. It was from Prince. Wow, are you kidding me? Yep, true story. Read his, wow, that's read his incredible. Book. <laughs> but you know, you know what, what? What if? What you know? The flip side to that is, what if you said yes? You know, you you don't understand something. You you hate it, and you say yes to it, and it turns out to be the worst piece of crap ever made. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, you know, at, at least when you turn it down because you don't like it, at least you're turning it down on your terms. So, you know, I, I've I've had you know look, look I've I've had more bands that have come my way that have gone on to be big then I've actually got to direct big bands, if that makes any sense. So, so the bands that I turned down <laughs> were, the, were the bigger, those, were, those would have been the better ones to have done music videos for, but for whatever reason, I listened to other people or I passed on them or whatever, and I shouldn't have. But, um, you know, but see, that, that was me listening to someone else. So that, boy, I've got to tell you, that really haunts you. That really makes you feel terrible when you know you should have done it, but you listen to someone else because you thought they knew more than you did, <laughs> and then they were wrong. See, that's the worst. So if you turn it down on your own terms, at least you have your dignity because right. you don't like something, <laughs> you know. Say you don't like, like the past. I mean, it would have been rude to, for you to boo, you know, at, at that at It would have because he's there, but, you yeah. know, we sucked. Right. Say, you know. I, I guess I guess politely clapping would have been appropriate if you know he's there. I mean, standing, I don't know. You know, you know, uh, th- this is something kind of like off base from what we're talking about yet related. Um, I don't know about you, Thad, but um, I've had a f- couple of my movies actually play in a movie theater setting. Doesn't mean a, a, a full release where I was actually in the audience watching. Usually, usually, obviously, a premiere of my movie. I can remember one in New York City. It was Hair of the Dog which involves uh, one of the writers that might be part of this, uh, looks like he's going to be part of this film we're doing, Devil's Five, Tim Clark. And I remember sitting in the audience, it was New York City, my first time a movie playing in Manhattan. I'm sitting with the crowd, I was like right in about the middle of the theater, and I, I think it's the only movie in my whole life that I actually thought, I don't know if I ever told you this, but while I was watching it for like the first, especially like first 15, 20 minutes, my legs were shaking uncontrollably <laughs> i was so scared I, I i'd seen the movie thousands of times at that point in the editing room and shooting and all that and i knew it worked but you don't know what the audience is going to think and i was scared out of my mind because it was with a major city crowd i didn't know what they're going to think of it uh it might have actually might have been actually it played for a couple of dates actually not not like a movie premiere that's right I'm, i might be remembering this wrong I think it was actually we played it like six, five or six days or something like that, and it was where people could just come off the street. So I had no nice. idea what they were going to do. I was scared out of my mind. I, I, I dude, I, I so 
understand what you went through because there was a movie that I scored in 2005 called Motel, a local movie, independent movie. They premiered it at Cinema Paradiso down here in Miami, and I went to the premiere, and I scored the entire film pretty much on my own. There's like one scene that I didn't score, which was there originally. The director put in the music himself because he really liked that piece of music. Uh, but I scored, I scored everything else, sound effects, everything. And the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm like shaking, you know, I was literally <laughs> nervous that people are going to judge my work as a composer, and, I, and I'm like literally nervous that people are going to start saying this music sucks, this makes no sense, but. At the end of the film, people started clapping, and it was like this joy just came over me. Like they liked the work, and the one thing that I kept hearing was how great the score was, the music, how well it went. And people didn't know that I was the one who scored this. I was just like standing there saying, "Yes, they like my work," like a, like a complete dork, by the way. But I that that thrilled me. That got me to the point that I wanted to get more and more into film. Mind you, that was back in 2005. Now we're here in 2013, and I'm still kind of like, you know, wanting to do more movies. And it it really is kind of, it's a different experience, isn't it, when you're in that situation, even though I understand you get nervous, but when you do get that positive feedback, man, there's nothing better than that. Yeah, you know what I found with that particular experience was you think the movie's going to play a certain way with the audience based on what happens. And what I found was they're going to react to it not always the same. Like right. they might they might find stuff funny that you didn't realize would be funny to them, and then maybe other points they get scared. You could tell when they get quiet, they're like really right. on the edge of the seat. So uh, it was really even when they laughed at places I didn't expect. I didn't take that necessarily as bad because you could tell they were being, uh, I guess you could say, entertained. Right. So right. For, me, yeah. for me, that was that was really great. It was definitely something you can't control. It's amazing how much you make a movie and you try to do all these things to get a reaction from an audience, but really in the end they're going to react their own way, and it's that's what I think that's part of the reason why it's so scary too, because you don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, no, that's yeah. so true. There's there's a scene in motel where the where the main girl gets raped, and it's like a really <laughs> brutal scene. It's like a really messed it's up. Kind she of a gets beat film? up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a uh, this is definitely not a, a G rated movie for Disney, but she it's a really you know messed up scene, and people were laughing at some of the scenes, and I'm like, why are they laughing? Interesting. It makes no sense, but they laughed at a couple of the scenes that had to do with rape, and I'm like, what an audience! This is weird. <laughs> But they, they like the movie. Uh, guys, uh, hold on right there real quick. We've got to go on a uh, quick commercial break before the 30-minute uh, mark here. We are joined by, of course, Terry Wickham, our guest of the evening, and also director. And I'm going to butcher her name, so let me just try it really slowly. Thad. Thaddeus, Thaddeus Bird, or Thad. There you go. There you go. Thad. We call him Thad for the night. Uh, if you guys want to get in on the phones, 786-245-8127. You're listening to Inside the Jackal's Head right here on PSN Radio. We'll, we'll be right back in a couple minutes. I promise you. More open lines. You're going to have more Terry Wickham and Thad. Guaranteed. Stick around. No longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. 
Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Superman Homepage.com. Grenade-shaped cans. Hey, yo, pull the pin and blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. Boom! Now that's the sound of refreshment. Sprunk! Go AWOL from the Cola Wars with an energizing mix of lemon, lime, ten times the caffeine and sugar. Plus, mercury and benzene for that extra pop. Yo, it'll bring the temperature right up. And the bubbles. Other beverages use carbon dioxide. We use ether to kick up that phase. Thanks to all that mercury, you won't remember anything that tasted so good. Now pick up a Sprunk Thermonuclear six-pack. Kill thirst and liven up the party. Toss your friends a Sprunk in the grenade-shaped can and enter the Sprunk sweepstakes where you can win a real case of grenades. Sprunk, blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. 
The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said The George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes. That George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fellow. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. PSN Radio The Soup. The best in talk radio anywhere. Everybody, we are back sitting here with Terry Wickham on Inside the Jackal's Head and director Thad Bird. I'm not saying the whole name because I'm going to butcher it. Thad Bird. <laughs> if you guys want to call in, please do so. 786-245-8127 is the call-in number. As always, open lines. Only rules is please be kind and please be polite. And if you're going to yell, yell at me. Don't yell at the guests, please. Just... Well, you can yell at me. I don't mind. <laughs> Let's just, I've been doing well, this long enough. I don't care. Hey, I, yeah, I was, well, I if that doesn't care, yell at him. But don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Terry's tell a nice me, guy. I'll don't be punching him. bag. No, I, I, was, <laughs> I was just going to mention, so um, I, start, I started my career, I guess, kind of professionally doing music videos. First producer I ever worked with said that, that, that music videos don't lead to features, and by golly, she was right. But um, so I tried to get out of that and tried to get more into you know doing regular films, but I keep getting pulled back into it. And um, I have a friend, his name's Tim Branham. Tim's a really interesting guy. He's played with everyone in the music business, and he he actually has the distinction of producing the very first Alice in Chains album, which is not which is not the facelift one. It's the one that's before that. But um, Tim has had has had some success on and off, but, like, one, his record label went under, and so, you know, kind of pulled the rug out from under his, you know, his feet. So now he's, he decided to go on his own, and so I was talking to Tim, and we decided we were going to do a music video, 
and I thought it'd be really cool. He has a song called Enemy, and for some reason I just saw Nosferatu. Um, not the silent version, but I don't know if... if have you seen the, uh, the 1979, the, the Werner Herzog version? Long time ago, yeah. Yeah, Very I actually think ago. it's a really, really great remake. So we kind of recreated scenes from that movie more than, than the, the silent version. And I thought it'd be really easy, you know, doing it on a budget. But I, true, it, it's really hard. If you're going to do a period film, um, make sure you already have the costumes, make sure you already have the props. My, uh, my son, my 14-year-old son and I built all the sets. And, it, I mean, it took weeks and weeks and weeks to do. But um, it's coming out at the end of this month. I can't tell you the exact release date yet because we're actually filming pickup shots next weekend. And it's very sad, but this may be the last time I ever shoot actual film. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah. Going digital, huh? Yeah, I don't think I have a choice. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, but yeah, we, we, have, we have a few pickup shots to do, but it's, it's basically edited. We just need to drop in the rest of the shots. Um, but it, Tim is really cool. It's, re- it's going to be a really cool music video, I promise. And if you go to timbranum.com, that's B-R-A-N-O-M.com, or look him up on Facebook, you know, shoot him a friend, re- friend request. Tim likes to whore himself out. He'll definitely uh, Who honor your friend request. <laughs> but uh, he, he makes really good music, and he's a really great guy, um, really great artist. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. But it's, it's so sad um, that this will be my it's, – it's weird to think that this may be the last time I actually run film. Ever no? Why? Why is that? Are you literally doing it on purpose, or I mean, you not shooting film anymore? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that you're. This is going to be probably the last time you shoot on film. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard J.J. Uh, Abrams it just announced that he's going to shoot the next Star Wars movie on film on thirty-five millimeter film. So he's kind of doing the backwards thing. They go from digital back to film. Oh, is that right? He, he's yeah. probably more concerned with the archiving. Um, doing anything digital is it, archiving becomes kind of problematic. Um, there's a lot of different factors on that. Film archives a lot better, but my understanding is 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 uh, Kodak just went out of business. I, I don't know too much because I don't get to shoot film all that often. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I would love to shoot more film, but the the reality is when you're trying to do it on a budget. See, I thought once I had all easy. my, I, yeah. yeah. See, I thought once I had all my own equipment, and I, and I have everything you need to make movies. But I thought, you know, it would be, you know, I could just go out and make movies. It's not that way. Film stock's very expensive. You have to pay for developing. Mm-hmm. Then you have the transfer costs. And then you have to pay to um, usually digitize it. Sometimes you, can digit- sometimes you can transfer straight to a hard drive. But there's just so many steps. And, and one, of the, one of the worst things is you don't get to see your footage right away. So that's on all going to be changed if you go digital, Thad. Yeah, right. True. So, so on this project, it was literally, um, Tim flew up here from L.A. to shoot his stuff. So we shot all the, the sync stuff of him sh- you know, singing to the, to, the, to the song. And then we had to recreate all the other stuff with actors. And so it was basically like we were blowing the whole budget, you know, bringing Tim up and doing that. And then he had to go back to L.A. And then I didn't know if we had it in, you know, in the can, so to speak, because I couldn't see it until the next week. So that was nerve-wracking. But then we spent even more money on, you know, recreating all the sets. And just like, you know, renting the period costumes is very, very expensive. Um, and so literally we had two-thirds of the budget was spent on that one day. And then it was done, and we had to destroy the sets because I had to get it out of the warehouse. And I didn't know if I had it. I didn't know if 
the film, you know, was going to go bad or if they were going to screw up at the lab or if there was going to be like a, you know, sometimes you can get, your magazine can scratch your negative and you have this line right. all the way through it. You can get dirt in the gate, which translates these big specks on your, you know, when you project it or when you look at it through telecine. And so that's not the way I like to make movies. It's really nerve-wracking. But, you know, when, when, when you actually do make good images, though, it's pretty exhilarating, though, because then you have it on film. Did, did, did either one of you guys catch the PBS special that Keanu Reeves hosted about film versus digital that was on about a month ago? Did you catch that? No, I missed that. It's a, it, was a doc, it was basically a documentary film that Keanu Reeves made where he wanted to get the input of all the professionals working, cinematographers, editors, especially directors, on why you should go film over video or vice versa or digital. And um, all of them were almost going toward, most of them were going towards of digital. And Robert Rodriguez was one of the guys who probably said it best. He said, why on earth would you want to shoot film when you don't know what you're getting? It costs so much more to process it. If you have to do multiple takes, you might not be able to afford to do it. He says, if you do digital, you shoot as many times as you want. You can see it right away. And you don't have to worry about all the people waiting to set up all the lights for it because I right. guess digital is so much quicker. He yep. just goes, I'll never shoot film again. There's no reason why I would. Well, there's also the other unfortunate part where I'll show it. You know, my, like I said, my son's 14 and, and we always have his friends over and we watch movies and stuff. And sometimes I'll show them like something I did on film and like, see how good that looks? And they can't tell a difference. So I, I think the younger generations, they don't even care anymore. <laughs> I, I hate to say that because film looks so beautiful. Even, even mm. the best digital stuff, well, some of the really, really high-end stuff has finally gotten to where film is. But generally speaking, it's just not as good. Film is still, you know, even Super 16, transfer high there, depth. Yeah, there, there is something about using actual film stock that yeah. you can never replace. I mean, I, I completely agree. Look, for and the perfect example is Star Wars. The original series shot on film. The prequels not shot on film on digital for the most part. And you can tell that difference as you go into the digital, which is a sequel they made, uh, Attack of the Clones. That was the first fully digital movie. Yeah, and that's yes, a, yeah. And here's the thing. George Lucas actually changed the way films are made twice in his career. First time in the 70s when he made Star Wars The New Hope, and then when he made Attack <laughs> of the Clones, making it all digital. That's the first time that it's ever been done like that. Um, so twice he changed filmmaking in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I always thought that was the, the oddest title, Attack of the Clones, because it almost sounds like Attack of the Clowns. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> from, outer, from outer space. No now, now I, I, have a, I have a question for you yeah, two which guys. Which is a great film, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I have an interesting question because it's Halloween coming up and it's October and it's the horror film month. And I know uh, we live for that stuff. Mm, I have a question yep. because I, I think you guys are probably from two slightly different age groups. Which Dawn of the Dead is better? The 1978 George Romero film or the remake from 2004? Which one is better and why? What would you both say in terms of your own argument? Because I think you're well, probably different opinions on that. Um, you want me to go first or you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, you go first, Mr. Jackal. It's your show. <laughs> well, since it is my show, <clears throat> I will go first. <laughs> Honestly, I think the original is still better. I, really? I did not, I did not like uh, the remake. I'm not a fan of uh, Snyder's. Um, 
you know, I'm not a fan of his work or his films. I hated Men of Steel, so that tells you right there what I think of of uh, Zack Snyder. But uh, no, I actually I enjoy the original a whole lot better. Wow, I'm surprised because I thought for sure you'd go the other way. Yeah, see, I will surprise you on Inside the Jackal set, everyone. What Just every once say, in a while. What would you say, Thad? Well, uh, Dawn of Dead's my favorite film, and to tell you how much of a geek I am. Um, when I was when I went on IMDb looking up Dawn of the Dead, I actually emailed them to tell them they had some of their facts wrong. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so what Terry said, man, that is dorky. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, I, I know things I shouldn't know. I probably know things that George Romero has forgotten. But so it, it's funny when Terry says 1978, he's actually correct. I mean, it it, it came out here in 1979, so you you always see Dawn of the Dead 1979. But it was released in Europe in 1978. It was just because of the, the rating system that wanted to slap it with an X, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. It's not that gory. Um, that it wasn't released until 1979. But, you know, the thing about the remake, you know, I thought it was good, but there's some things that left me cold. Like, I didn't like the, the baby, you know, like the, the zombie giving birth to a, to a baby. I just, I, that just was really, I don't know, rubbed me the wrong way. And the thing that was missing from the new Dawn of the Dead, the remake, and I'm sure the Jackal will agree with me, it was missing all the nuances. It was missing the, the um, yep. kind of the, uh, the statement on consumerism. You know, yep. it, it, when, when I go to a, to a mall, I love looking at all the people shopping, and they look just like the zombies in Dawn of the Dead. It's hysterical. And there's a lot going under the surface. So Dawn of the Dead, you know, if you just want to watch a cool action horror film and see heads explode and, and zombies ripping guts out, you got that. But if you want to a film that goes a little bit beyond that and has some social commentary, that's, always, that's also there. And so it's one of those films that you can watch over and over and over. To, to me, yeah, I call it the Mount Everest of zombie films. It, it's impossible to make a... You can make a good zombie film and get close, but you'll never make a better film than Dawn of the Dead. It was, it was there first. And you, and you know what I find yep. interesting. You know, and you know what I find interesting about the whole slow zombie versus fast zombie argument is, if you look at, and I'm not saying I hated the new Dawn of the Dead. I didn't like it as much as the original, but I always thought that the slow zombies made more sense because if just, I think Tom Savini, I heard him say recently, if you think about it, if you're actually like dead, why would that make you like? stronger and more muscular and, and faster it just just from a a body sense makes no sense right. and um look at the walking dead the walking mm -hmm. dead is more like the romero zombies and that's the, probably the best tv show i've ever seen one of the one of the most the scariest nightmares i ever had it was probably right after i saw terminator there was a terminator like robot coming after me but it couldn't run it would just like walk towards me so i could easily outrun it but it would never stop. And so I could go to a different city, and before I, you know, this thing would eventually catch up to me. And to me, that was scary. It wasn't the fact that it could run after me. It was the fact that it never stopped. And it, and it would eventually, you know, it would eventually wear me out. And I remember that nightmare very vividly, and it was really scary. And that's what I love about the slow zombies. You know, you kind of, you're kind of complacent, you think you can handle it, and then they all kind of mob together and... I just I always love that. The well, there's also that that, that buildup of uh, of hype, or not hype, but anticipation of the zombie coming to get you, or the zombie killing the the, the protagonist in the film. It's kind of like in every slasher movie where you know you have the killer who walks really slow, but he always catches his victims, no like, matter if they're running like, through the woods. Like Michael Myers in Halloween. Yeah, I, 
Right. Yeah, Michael Myers, that, yeah. Jason, you know, even Freddie, they just walk slowly towards the victim. And, they, and there's that buildup of, of tension as they're getting closer and closer. That that helps. It really does. You know, recently I watched a, a movie, a zombie movie, where the, the zombies were all over the place running. And, and, and the movie was good, but it really lacked that element. And I'm talking about World War Z. What do you guys think of that film? Did you see it? Oh, yeah, you saw it, Terry. Yeah, I, 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 I'll tell you, I, overall I liked it. Um, and what I what I liked about it the most was I thought it was going to be wall to wall zombies like the the trailer the coming attractions trailer where they were going up that wall and they were all over the place. If the whole movie would have been like that, I think it would not have been very good. But I liked if you look at the film as a right. whole, it starts out with all that crazy, chaotic, tons of zombies and cities overrunning all that. And what happens if you look at the film? It becomes from a lot of zombies to less zombies to less right. zombies to less zombies. Pretty soon you got Brad Pitt in a room with that one zombie. So right. I thought that it made it zombie more intimate than just being a big giant crowd. And I thought that that was the key to the whole movie because you can't really you can't really relate. I don't think to showing all the zombies all the time. You got to kind of almost make them characters, like maybe Romero did with Bub and Day of the Dead. Where you can get a character almost, or the the Harry Krishner zombie in Dawn of the Dead, or you know one of those more iconic zombies in Dawn of the Dead, the guy at the airport, or you know the um, you know the, that's that's that was what made World War Z to me good was that it w- became more about less, and that's always better, and I think in horror films. Did, did I they spend, agree. Did, yeah. Didn't they spend like? Wasn't that like two hundred thirty million, something like that? Yeah, yeah, had a huge budget. Can you imagine if you gave George Romero two hundred thirty million dollars? Oh hey, George, my God. Go make a, go make a, you know. The, the only thing I didn't like about World War Z is right when they were going to cut to the, you know, like like the the machete cutting off the arm, kind of ripping off Day of the Dead, of course. But right. they cut away. So I guess that's the difference between like a George Romero zombie movie and a PG thirteen zombie movie. But you know, when you're 230 million bucks, you can't, you know, you can't do an R, you can't do a an NC-17 or unrated. So, right, yeah, no, it's a big studio. So, I, I, look, I think there were graphic. There was, you know, there's enough gore and graph and graphic scenes in it uh, to please the audience without going overboard and not losing that PG-13. Because when you're, like you said, you know, the, the budget was like 190 or 200 million plus. You have to add uh, the all the the money they add just to give the movie any buzz and just put it out there and. And that costs a lot of money. So two hundred thirty, two hundred forty million is probably what they spent on the overall budget. To spend that kind of money on a film, you really want to get your target audience and not lose them. And they, I understand why they would do that and cut away from certain, some scenes were just a little too gory. But they showed you a lot in that movie. I mean, for PG thirteen, I mean that movie had a lot of uh, a lot of gore in it. It really, you know, it didn't go overboard, but it really did have a little bit of gore in it. Now, now I know we're coming down to the last uh, short while on your show here. Yep. I just wanted to say from my point of view as far as Devil's Five, one of the things I'm hoping that we're able to achieve is to make it more than just a little bit of like a music park ride. I think mm. uh, some of the movies I've seen recently that were found footage, low-budget movies, similar to what we're going to be doing, they kind of just they kind of all revert to the same uh, format where it's not really about the story. It's just about things chasing you and, uh, you know, whether it be quarantine chasing you up and down the stairs of that building or whether it be, which is Wreck, as we know, the remake of Wreck, or if it's VHS where they're chasing you as zombies when you're on a bike or if it's in Wreck 2 where you're in this, you know, cult and all these people start chasing you. To me, they all become like a chase and it's just violence. 
So I'm hoping yep. that we can make something that's thrilling, exciting, kind of like that, but has a little bit more of a story to it. Um, I'm I'm going to, from my point of view, for what I'm doing, I know Thad's doing and Brian and the other guys on the film, but I'm going to be trying to connect them so that they're not like... One of the things I didn't like about VHS or VHS 2 was those films could have came from anywhere. They had totally no relation. And I want to have ours to have a connecting thread that kind of joins them so there's like a reason that they're there and they're kind of related. So I don't know what Thad would say, but I'm going to try to push the found footage restrictions too. I'm going to try to screw with that where I kind of make it not just straight the way everyone expects, but yet fit within the restrictions, so to speak. Kind of like, kind of like Cloud Atlas where everything is interconnected and there are different stories, but of course not as bad as Cloud Atlas was. That was really a bad movie, but... Well, you know, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I do like uh, Tom Twyker a lot, the director from Germany that worked on that with the two... Uh, well, not they're not brothers anymore. One's a girl now. <laughs> yeah. we're trust- well, the Wachowski siblings. Yeah, the siblings. Oh, but, um, yeah, I, I wanted to connect. Um, obviously, they're all being written by different people. Um, Thad's writing his own. The one I'm directing is being written by Tim. Um, I'm writing the wraparound that starts it, ends it, and kind of joins in between. So, and I don't, there's a couple other guys involved too. But um, I don't know. I, I know Thad, when he came to me, to ask me if I wanted to be involved. He said he wanted to be scary. He said he wanted to not look like a movie, but it has to be found footage. We kind of mess with that any way we want, whether, but still stay within that kind of restriction. And um, uh, he wanted to be kind of realistic. And he said that hopefully because we're a smaller movie, that we should have exploitable elements, whether it be gore or nudity. So our film's probably going to have those type of things. But um, you got to have the goodies. I, yeah, a boob shots here and there will help sell the movie. The main, the main thing I'm hoping is that we're not, that we have a little bit more than just the amusement park ride feel to the film. Right. What's, you know, here's a quick question before we, we uh, take off for the evening. What's your favorite found footage movie that's come out in the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years? Wow. Oh. Each one of you has a minute here to give me an answer, and then I'll give you my answer. Ooh. Oh, boy. That, that, you know, I I think I would have to say... This is going to be very unpopular because no one else is going to agree with me. But probably the second Paranormal Activity. Wow, really? I I, I remember it being fan. I really fantastic. I saw it in the theater with my nephew and his girlfriend, and we thought it was really scary. And I took my son and everyone to see it, and we thought it was great. And yeah, I think. Oh wait, no, uh, I, but you know what though? I I <laughs> there's a film that just came out. If if you if you haven't seen it, you really should see it. I would put, definitely put this up there. Frankenstein's Army. Hmm. The guy Never that directed that it, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. You can certainly Google it. This guy is a genius. If if he if Hollywood could give him $230 million, you would really see something. It, is it that is a found really, footage movie, Dad? Yes, yes. And it, it is. It, it, ha- it takes place during World War II, and it's, uh, you know, this guy, you know, basically building these, they call them Zombots for, for the Nazis, and it's very disturbing in places, and the, the production design came all from the director's head, and it's fantastic. It's well, just fantastic. Well, well to, answer, to answer your question, uh, Jackal, I would say this is going to sound like a strange answer. There's moments in the first, second, third paranormal that I really liked a lot. Uh, I think there's a third where the girl gets lifted up by her hair when she goes upstairs, the sister. Mm, it's yeah. not believing. That was a great moment. Um, yep. I like in this third one where the girl's sitting in the dining room and the camera slowly pans on that, I think it was on a fan, 
and it pans to the living room, and you see like a ghost, almost a ghost-like figure sheet in the corner, yeah, really great. small. You might not even notice it. All of a sudden, when it goes back to her, it's not there. And when it goes back, it's not there in the living room. It goes back, it's right behind the girl. That was great. There's some moments in the second and first. You know, I, I, I think that my overall, even though I thought it was kind of silly, and I thought that the monster was way too big, there were a lot of moments in Cloverfield yes. that I really liked. And I actually think that one of the first found footage movies, may not be in the first like Dad said, but one of the first that really had power was when the camera falls on the ground in Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, where it oh, that yeah. family. Yeah. I thought that John McNaughton, when he did that, that was really powerful. Talk about I being ahead like, of the curb. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, I think that was made originally in 86, but it took three or four years to get released because it was so violent. I think it was shot in 85, actually. Yeah, it was somewhere in the mid-80s. That's yeah. how much of a geek I am. I, I know... So, so what's yours, Jacko? <laughs> Actually, uh, you just mentioned it, Terry. And my favorite uh, found footage movie probably is Cloverfield. Really? I you like know, it. I yeah, have... yeah, it's a great. I think it's a great movie. Saw I have in theaters. Movie at home. I'm gonna have to check. I'll, I'll, I'm gonna put that in tonight. Oh, watch it, dude! It's a great movie. Uh, look, it's one of those movies where I went into it not knowing really, literally nothing about the movie. Only reason I went in to see this movie is because I was a fan of one of the actors in it. I saw the trailer and I was like, it looks interesting. He's really funny on on another show that he, that he used to be on. His name is T.J. Miller. Uh, he's been in a couple of different films. He did uh, Our Idiot Brother. He's, he was on the show Carpoolers. Really funny dude. And I saw the trailer, and I was like, whoa, he's from Carpoolers. That guy's funny. And I had nothing to do that weekend, so me and a bunch of friends went out, and we saw it. Not knowing anything about the movie. I didn't even know it was a found footage movie. I saw one trailer. That's it. Ended up loving the movie. Yeah. Love awesome. the movie. Well, yeah. speaking of found footage movies, uh, you can also check out uh, Devil's Five on Facebook. Nice. Yeah, still listening. Got to yes. mention that. Yeah, please please give, give everybody uh, all the website addresses, everything that uh, that you guys want to promote. Uh, take a couple minutes here and just uh, give out to everybody so they can go ahead and check you guys out. Yeah, right. just uh, timbranham.com um, and uh, Devils 5 on Facebook. Yeah, and, and Devils 5, it's spelled out. That's apostrophe S, uh, yeah. 5, F-I-V-E instead of the number 5. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, and if you, can, if you hit like on that, You'll get all our updates. I try to update it once a week with something with going on with the film, whether it be a video from one of the filmmakers involved, whether it be a Thad's music video shoot catalog. We did that earlier this year. And uh, there'll be a so, link to the uh, to the music video, the Nosferatu mu- music video. That's uh, Tim Branham's music video as well. That picture is wicked, man. I love that picture of Nosferatu. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was really, really happy with the makeup. I mean, but that's that's what you call a sweat equity music video. We had very small budget, and so it was me and a fourteen-year-old kid basically putting all that the costuming and everything together, and it took weeks. <laughs> wow! And, 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 and of it's course, epic. you can you can always keep up with my work as a filmmaker, a journalist on MantaraPictures dot com. Terry's got some excellent reviews. He's Terry knows his stuff. Yeah, no kidding. That's for that's, that's an interesting character in itself, right there. And that's for out character. Oh, yeah. Love that! Love that picture. Do you guys ever catch that movie with Willem Dafoe um, about Nosferatu? Yeah. Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah. Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yes. And, and, and by the way, I just want to give a shout out to my to my good friend Jim Fox, who played Nosferatu. He's not an actor, but when I told him I was doing directing a music video with Nosferatu in it, he started acting just like uh, Max Schreck. <laughs> I said, "Oh my gosh, I got to cast him." So that's, that's how I capped him, and and he tore it up. He is so good in this music video. So it's really cool that the last thing I get to shoot on film, maybe, 
actually, it, out of all the music videos I've ever done, this is this is the best. And you know, every time you make a project, you always think it's going to be good, or you always hope it's going to be good. Most of the time, it's not. I, I don't want to take the wind out of anyone's sails, but you know, you do your best. But sometimes, for whatever reasons, it's you know, maybe it's good, maybe it's got moments of greatness. It's really rare when you really get the that fire and you know, in the bottle and. Um, but that, that's in a where, bottle, man. Yeah, light, yeah, yeah. But the, the, that's where having a really strong story and a really good script that that would be like the tantamount thing. That's as long as you have that, you have the foundation. If you don't have that, who knows? Yes, yeah, so Devils I, Five. Everybody, Devil, check Devils that out. Five, and I, I think our goal for Devils Five is uh, hopefully by this time next year around Halloween, we'll have the film distributed and out nice. for everyone to see. So that's our goal. Yeah, I, and nice. I promise, it's going to be a fun ride. If nothing else, it'll be a fun ride. But hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll get the little nuances and the story, and, and uh, people will enjoy that. Yeah. Can't wait for the, uh, for the video with Nosferatu. That looks epic, man. It really, really does. And for Devils 5, I can't wait to see the, the film when it, when it, once it comes out. Guys, got to have you back on. We'll definitely do another show in the near future and promote more stuff. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thaddeus, thank you so much oh, for calling in and thank, being a part yeah, of the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was, it was awesome. Pl- I had a great time. Pl- pleasure having you guys on. And, uh, guys, we will be back next week right here on Inside the Jackal's Head with another big one. Mr. Dennis Reno is going to be on next week. Yes, Dennis Reno from the ufologist cartoons that you see all over the internet. Really, really cool guy. He's going to be on next year, next week here with me. And uh, please join us. Come back and uh, love to have you. Please call in. Take care, everybody. Have a great night, guys. Thank you so much again for being part of the show. Really appreciate having you guys on here. Good night. Cool, thanks. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha,